Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, ever since he walked the earth, there's been theories as to who Jesus was. Even while he was on the earth, there were different theories as to who Jesus was, who he is. We've been walking through the bar, the blah, 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 Mark, yeah, the book of Mark, the bark of Mook. Uh, my dyslexic speaking kicks in again. The book of Mark, and uh, we've made it all the way to chapter 3 at this point. We haven't been grunting our way through every single pericope. That's a fancy word for story. We haven't been stopping in everything. We've been trying to kind of get to different pieces and different places that kind of help us unpack this mosaic of the Messiah that Jesus is, unpack these different stories, these different things that Jesus did. And what I've been trying to argue is that Mark is a very intentionally written book. It has a very clear structure, and when you first read it, you may not see it might just feel like he grabs and pulls and puts these things together randomly. But the more I read it, and I, I have been disciplining myself to read through the book of Mark every week as I'm preaching it. And each week I come away just going, wow, that structure, this stuff that's going on. And it is amazing how much it taps into Old Testament theology and Old Testament thinking. And so I'm having a blast with this book, and if you're not tough darts. Um, so, but there have been all sorts of debates, and there are debates now raging as to who Jesus is, who he was, who he said he is. And this passage that we are going to look at today is a very interesting passage. It's actually uh, chapter 3, verse 20 is where we're going to begin. And if you want to get your Bible out and open it. And one of the structures types of things that ancient authors did was they liked um, chiasms. When you're in seminary, you talk about chiastic structure all the stinking time. And you start going, people are just reading chiasms into everything. And what is a chiasm? A chiasm is where there is uh, A1 followed by B1, followed by C1, and then there's C2, followed by B2, followed by A2. And I know that means nothing to you, and that's okay. I'm going to try explaining. But this is a chiasm, I think, a structure of a chiastic structure here where we see that Jesus' family appears first, then there's the religious leaders, then Jesus teaches some stuff about himself, then the religious leaders respond, then his family says something. And so it's kind of like this sandwich that you get. And when you see structures like this, it, it helps you. It alerts you to, oh, this should all be taken together. And it's partly why they do it, is to help us understand where to start and stop reading. Did you know that your Bible, that Luke, Mark, Matthew, John, they did not include chapter and verses when they wrote it? Did you know that the little headings... Like chapter 3, a man with a withered hand. That's what mine says. A man with a withered hand. Did you know that they didn't include that in the originals? Did you know that those things can throw you off 
as to where to begin and end your reading and where to see a a story to begin and end. I found it helpful. There's actually a a book, uh, it's actually an NIV Bible version, and they have taken out all of the editorial stuff. They've taken out all the verses and chapter markings in the Bible, and I find it is really fun to read that Bible. It really helps me. Helps me see different structure than what they want me to see sometimes. And in this story, we're going to see that Jesus' family is responding and they're trying to figure out who Jesus is and they have an answer to who he is. We're going to see that the religious leaders are trying to figure out who Jesus is and they also have an answer as to who Jesus is. Then Jesus gives us the answer as to who he is. Isn't that so neat and tidy how this is all packed up? And then we're going to see that as the leaders walk away and the family walks away, they don't get it still. And so let's just dive into Luke chapter 3, beginning verse 20. Yeah, that too. If you are in Luke, that will be confusing to you because I'm going to start reading out of Mark chapter 3. The reason I point out that some of these little headings and stuff don't help is because you might have noticed, maybe it's in your Bible, but they've sectioned off verse 20 with what went before, and I'm choosing to section verse 20 with what's coming, okay? Then he went home, who? Jesus. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. <laughs> That's a bad day. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Moms, you ever had that experience with your kids? I'm going to go seize my child because he is out of his mind. And the scribes, the religious people who came down from Jerusalem. It's interesting that Mark throws in there from Jerusalem. They have traveled to find Jesus. We're saying, here's their answer to who Jesus is. He is possessed by Beelzebub which is a really fun word to say, Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's a fascinating passage. And I hope that you saw that there are two groups, the family 
and the leaders of the religious viewpoints in, in Jerusalem that don't understand who Jesus is. Did you hear their answers to who Jesus is? He's a lunatic. He's an evil liar. And did you hear Jesus answer? Maybe you didn't because he spoke in parables. Mark wanted that to be clear. Uh, It's a little veiled, and Jesus has a knack for this. In fact, as we enter into chapter 4, we're going to see that Jesus all of a sudden ratches it, uh, it up and starts to talk in parables quite often. Up to this point, though, we're in this mighty deeds section, and Jesus has been doing these mighty deeds. He has healed somebody who had leprosy. He has uh, healed a man who was paralyzed. He has claimed to forgive sins. He rose someone from the dead. He's been doing mighty deeds. And there's crowds that gather. There's folks who want to be near. There's people who want to experience. There's people who want to hear and see. And each of these crowds, it's interesting, Mark does point out each time that Jesus was teaching. He's not just doing mighty deeds. He's also teaching, which makes me feel better about myself. And here we see that his family has come to seize him, to take authority over him. Literally, they, they, you could almost translate this as they want to toss him into jail. The loony bin, perhaps. They want him to pipe down, go away, be quiet. What will people think? And their answer is, Jesus is a lunatic. Now, it's interesting. I first came across this, these, this threefold argument about who Jesus was from a man named Paul Little and Josh McDowell. And they frame this argument that Jesus is either Lord, or excuse me, he's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. And I don't remember remember them going to this passage in their discussion of it. But this passage, that's clearly the three options you have for those who knew Jesus and heard his claims. Now, you may not have heard this argument because in our modern-day society, we have come up with a fourth alternative as to who Jesus is. We've come up with a fourth alternative as moderns because most people like Jesus. Most people think he was a good guy. Most people find that his teachings, you know, turn the other cheek. Oh, that's really admirable, and it's a good teaching. Love your enemies. Can't tell you how often that's quoted on Facebook, you know, when people are arguing and fussing and fighting about something, taking care of the poor and the downtrodden, providing food for the hungry. Sounds like a liberal almost, doesn't he? Jesus, he is liked nowadays. People don't want to see him as a lunatic. And I think most people don't see him as a liar but they clearly also don't want the consequences of seeing him as Lord. They don't want to believe him as Lord because that might have some implications for their personal life. So we've come up with a fourth alternative in our worldview. And the alternative is this, and maybe you have heard this. The New Testament stories about Jesus are unreliable. 
The New Testament stories about Jesus, you can't trust them because, you know, it was written by people. And what happened was over time, this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus did these miracles, that Jesus was the Son of God, over time that developed by the religious churchy people. And I just want to quickly tell you that's bogus. And there's really good reasons why, and I don't have enough time to get into it because you don't want to be here until noon listening to me. But just a couple things. Mark, as I've been arguing, I think this is the earliest written gospel that we have. And it was written perhaps before Peter was executed in Rome. And I believe that this book was Mark writing down Peter's stories, writing down Peter's reflections on the life of Jesus. And one of the problems with seeing the New Testament stories about Jesus as being unreliable is that they were just written too soon. You can't start creating fabrications about somebody while all the folks who knew him are still alive. Right? I mean, you can, but does it get lots of traction? Do people start dying for something that they knew was a lie? I mean, it's too soon. These are too short of a span of time. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead, and many of them are still alive today, says Paul. Do you know when you write that into something? When it's true. Not when you're trying to create a legend. He's basically saying, you can go talk to these people. Now, Mark, one of the things also that that I think is interesting is his caricatures. Yeah, that's not the right word. The way that he records the way the disciples were is that they are a bunch of jerks who are boneheads. They don't get it. I mean, if you read the whole book of Mark and you just start from the beginning to end and you just sit down and you read a couple chapters each day, you are dumbfounded with how dumb the disciples are. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't get what he's doing. One day he feeds 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread. A couple days later he feeds 4,000 people with a couple loaves of bread. They get into a boat and Jesus says, be on your guard for the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're like, oh my gosh. He's upset because we only brought one loaf of bread. That's stupid. They don't get it. They don't understand. If you are starting a movement that is human-driven, if you are trying to get people to agree with you and like you, do you start by disparaging yourself? Do you start by putting yourself down? Do you start by saying, you know, I really don't know anything, so I don't know why you listen to me, but here. No. You try to come across as an authority. I mean, if you don't believe that, then watch a political debate. They don't start out by saying, well, I really don't have any thoughts on the matter. I really don't have any plans. No, they get up there and they say, those people are morons and these people are idiots, you know, if they tend to be a little more crass type of candidate. And they are very emotive 
And they're very self-assured and very confident. And that's not the picture at all that you get of the disciples. If they were the ones who created this legend, then they should have been the stars. I know if I was creating a legend, I'd be the star. Another thing, lots of people throughout human history have claimed to be divine. There are people today on planet Earth. There's a guy in Brazil. You can watch his webisodes. It's all in Spanish, so I don't understand what's going on. But he sits on this throne. He's this old gray-haired man with a long beard. And I can't remember his name, but he sits in white flowy robes. And he makes pronouncements. And he believes he is the Son of God. And he has a following. A couple, 20, 30, 40 people. And whoever has time online to watch. There have been throughout human history hundreds of people who thought they were divine and claimed to be so. But only Jesus movement became a major world religion. Let me suggest to you that most of the lunatics who think that they're divine and claim that they're divine, they just attract other lunatics and other broken and hurting and just out there people. And they can get a little bit of a crowd, but they can't get tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people to follow them. They can't get people to lay their lives down for them across all sorts of different nationalities and backgrounds. They can get a little cult thing going. But if Jesus was a lunatic, how do you explain us? How do you explain the church today? Now, that's just a couple of ramblings on why that can't be possibly true. If you're interested in that stuff, there's tons of good answers for this stuff. You don't need to go on YouTube and find a video by Bart Ehrman, and he's saying, you can't trust this stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. I should quit being a Christian. Don't do that to yourself. (laughs) There are well-reasoned arguments for the validity of the New Testament. Jesus... He's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. He's not the fourth option that we've come up today with, and that is he's a nice, good teacher of peace and love. He's not. Did you hear how this book began? Did you hear what we've been saying? We're just into the third chapter of Mark, and Jesus has been claiming, I am the Son of Man, a divine figure from Daniel chapter 7. I have power to forgive sins, which the Jews believed only God could do. I have healed lepers and risen dead people, and I've cast out demons. This is what Jesus has done up to this point. We're just into chapter 3 of this book. Does that at all lead you to believe Jesus is just this peace, love, Dude, hippie kind of guy who just is a teacher with a good vibe. It's not what he says about himself. Let's look more closely first at what the scribes say about him and then what Jesus says about him. Did you remember that word that's really fun to say that they said? Beelzebub. What on earth is 
that. You're glad you came to church because you're going to know. <laughs> when I was growing up here in America, we had a foe. We were in the midst of the Cold War. We had a foe. And that foe was communism. And it was most personified by the USSR and Cuba a little bit. But the USSR was a big, scary, nasty group of people who might blow us up. And I remember as a child, I would watch the news, Walter Cronkite. And I remember I would go to bed scared for my life many nights because I was convinced the end of the world was about to happen because of all of the, the tension every night on the news, more and more tension, more and more fears. And I also started to not like Russians, though I didn't know any personally. But somehow, thinking that they want to kill me and my family and everything I know and love made me want to hate them. Funny how that works. The Israelites also had a foe. And their children feared the foe. And it was reported on the nightly news if they had such a thing. Their foes always... I shouldn't say always. They had two places their foes came from. They came from either the south or from the north. But the most devastating attacks, the most devastating routes of the people of Israel always came from the north. So the first significant defeat was in 722 BC when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, what they did was they were ruthless people. What they would do is they would divide you up and they would ship you off to the outer reaches of their empire. They figured if you weren't hanging out together, you couldn't conspire for a revolution. So the best way to fix that was to ship you off and send you out amongst other people who also had been shipped off and sent out. But they speak a different language and they're upset for different reasons and you can't communicate with them. And over time, you would have eventually assimilate into Assyrian culture. And so the 10 lost tribes of Israel began that way. And that invasion came from the north. And then there was a series of three invasions from 605 to 586 BC. And these were invasions by Babylon. And Babylon came from the north when they invaded the southern kingdom of Israel, the two remaining tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And they finally defeated the southern kingdom of Judah. And they drug them off into captivity in Babylon. And the people would have seen this as a whole different way than you and I would have seen it. They saw it against this backdrop of spiritual warfare. You see, the Babylonians thought, cool, our God finally beat their God. And not only that, just think how you would feel if somebody came and knocked down, you know, our national capital building. If some enemy came and knocked that down, the Washington Monument, they just blew up the whole area of Washington, D.C. In fact, several years ago, there was a movie. It's called Independence Day. 
and it was a CG movie. They blew up a fake White House. And it made people mad. It made Americans mad. Like, you can't be blowing up our nice building. We like those buildings. That's us. What was going on? It was symbolic of who we think we are as people. That's why it was an emotive thing for many to see that happen. Did you know what the Babylonians did? They destroyed the temple. I mean, they knocked it down. They utterly ruined it. They destroyed it. They plundered it. The inside of the temple was laid in pure gold. All of the articles in the temple were pure gold. Guess what they did with those? They hauled them off to Babylon. They took God's stuff out of God's house. They destroyed his throne. They destroyed God's temple. And against their worldview mindset, their backdrop, they all would have been thinking, oh my gosh, the Israelites would have been thinking this too. Oh my goodness, the gods of Babylon are stronger than Yahweh. Now the prophets had been giving them some insight for a little while. They didn't listen too well. We tend not to listen to prophets sometimes. The prophets, they were saying this, God is raising up Babylon to destroy you, to discipline you. So God was even behind that, using that. But in their worldview, they thought, God is destroying us. He's, he is wiping us out. We have lost to the gods of Babylon. Now, there's another foe to the north. And if you like Bible prophecy, you're going to sit up and go, ooh. There's this foe to the north, and his name is Gog from Magog. And the north has always had this, this view in the Israelite mind that it is evil and is bad. If you read the Psalms, you see that there are names of places to the north. There's Bashan, there's Mount Hermon, there's Tyre, there's Sidon. These are cities and places in the north. And all of these places are associated with a god named Baal. This is his home turf. This is where God Baal rules and reigns. And one of his titles in your Ugaritic is Prince. And the way you spell Prince in Ugaritic is Z-B-L. So the way they would have said it would be like Zabel Baal. You hear it? Zabel Baal. And he became associated as the prince of the dead. The prince of the underworld. And during the time between the Testaments, and even you start to see it in the New Testament, you see that the Jewish people have associated Beelzebub with Satan from Genesis 3. That's what Jesus says here. You see, the Israelites, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're going, you're the great spiritual foe of Israel. Could you have a worse misunderstanding? Could you have a worse accusation leveled against their Messiah than you are the whore? You could be Gog. How does Jesus respond? Does Satan drive out Satan? 
You, you can't break into a strong man's house and take his stuff without first binding the strong man. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm stronger than the strong man. He's saying, you think I'm Gog? You think I'm Beelzebub? I'm stronger than Beelzebub, the one you fear so much. I'm greater than him. I've come to kick butt and take names. I've come to give life. I've come to bind the strong man. I've come to forgive sins. I've come to fix the problems of this world. Do you know what one of the chief problems of this world is? Humanity. You look at the chief problem in this world every morning in the mirror. You see, Sam and I went and watched a movie last night called The Revenant. It was a disturbing movie. <laughs> I'm glad I saw it. it. Made me a little sick at points. <laughs> it, was a little, it was like watching The Passion of the Christ without any hope of resurrection at the end. Okay, it was pretty gory, pretty, pretty bloody. And one of the themes in the movie is this theme of revenge. And what the character Hugh Glass finds out at the end of the movie, is that, well, revenge isn't worth it. But do you know how human nature it is to want to get revenge? I mean, do you understand that drive in all of us that if somebody does something to us, then, well, doggone it, I'm going to get them back. They poke me in the eye, I'm going to poke them in the eye. They kick me in the shins, I'm going to kick them in the shins. I mean, it's just human nature to not want to retaliate feels completely wrong, weird, abnormal. But did you know that if you want to retaliate, that just is demonstration that you are a prisoner in the strong man's house. Did you know that? Why do you think the world is as bad as it is? Why do you think we can't get it any better through just us trying harder and being nicer? Because in all of us, we want mine and ours, and we want it the way we want it, and we're going to get rid of anybody in our way. We're going to get rid of anyone who hurts us, anyone who messes with us. We are captives of the strong man. That's what destroys the world. That's what destroys your life. That's what destroys your family, your loved ones, your friends. That's what destroys churches. It's us. And what they started to realize in the Old Testament was, how is God going to fix evil without destroying us? How is he going to fix evil without destroying us? Because to get rid of evil means you have to get rid of anything and everything that's been tainted by evil. If you don't believe you're evil, I have a suggestion for you. Can I strap a GoPro camera to you for the next week? If you don't believe you're evil in any of your interactions with anyone if you believe you've got it all figured out let us do that we'll strap a gopro to you for a week 
I bet you won't let us down. I bet very quickly we'll go, oh my gosh, I can't believe they behave that way. Did you see how he rolled his eyes after mom said that? Oh, that's not evil. Really, how does mom feel about it? How is God going to fix evil without destroying us? Jesus is here and he's saying, I am stronger than the strong man. I have come to bind him and to steal his stuff. You know what's his stuff? It's us. He's come to take us out of the realm of sin and evil and death. He's come to do this. And how is he going to do this? Oh, and this is so annoying. This is the super annoying. This is the part where the disciples just don't get it. In fact, after Jesus is risen from the dead, they're standing there looking at Jesus, who's risen from the dead. I think that's how they looked, based on their comments. And it says, he had to open their minds so that they would understand that the Messiah had to die and rise again. Even after he's standing there accomplishing all this, they still are going, I, I don't get it. And it says God had to open their minds. Do you have people in your life who just don't get it? And you think, if I just explain it better, if I just get them to church somehow, if the preacher is just extra good that day, don't put much hope in that. It is the Holy Spirit. It is God who has to open their minds. It is Jesus who has to rescue us from the strong man. And the way he does this is through his death. Paul says in Romans that if you will turn the other cheek, if, if you will not return evil with evil, if you will allow God to have his pound of flesh and you don't go about trying to get it, then you will heap burning coals on your enemies' heads. What does that mean? Because I've got some enemies that, yeah, burning coals would be a cool idea. What's, what's going on here? What Paul is saying is, did you know that you can be so loving? I mean, you can't be, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus living in you, the power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. Through his power, you can be so loving, so selfless, so oriented in a way that though they kill you, you can forgive them. How do I know this? Because that's what Jesus did. How do I know this? That's because that's what millions of martyrs since Jesus walked the face of the earth have done. We have video evidence of this, sadly, nowadays. You and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can forgive. We can act like Jesus. That's the whole plan. And through his death on the cross, utter weakness, he is the strongest. Through his death on the cross, he defeats them. That's the only way this world can be put to right. One last thing. 
Do you think education is going to fix this world? Do you think a good teacher of peace and love is going to fix this world? I mean, think of the world. Think of death. Think of disease. Think of injustice. Think of poverty. Think of hunger. Think of the world as it is. Think of its brokenness. Do you think a teacher is going to overcome that? There is no hope in the modern view that Jesus is just a nice teacher who came to proclaim peace and love. There is only hope in what Jesus said about himself. I am stronger than the strong man. I am the son of man. I am. I am. May we place our faith in this Lord. And may you understand the implications of this. That you are not yours any longer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and that he has figured out a way, that God has figured out a way, the Holy Spirit has figured out a way to deal with death, to deal with evil and sin and not destroy us, but to forgive us. Thank you that they had this figured out before they made anything. And thank you that this gives them the most glory and honor that he can take rebels like me who would have stood in the crowd and yelled crucify. And he can forgive. And Lord, thank you for what that does in all of us to move us to be humble and want to be like you. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you know the one that's stronger than the strong man. May you know him as Lord. Amen.